Welcome to the Restore Body Balance podcast, where we combine psychology, biology, and neurology to enact life changes that stick. I'm Colleen Burns, licensed psychotherapist and founder of Restore Body Balance. My co-producer, Nico Utanis, wanted to continue this mind-body connection series this week. So today, we have a special guest who also shares the same curiosity on how the mind-body connection was once separate and now highly researched as being inseparable. I am very pleased to welcome Dr. Lisa Desai, Director of Behavioral Health Consulting at MindWise Innovations, a service of Riverside Community Care. Well, Colleen, thank you so much. I'm absolutely delighted to be here, and I really appreciate the opportunity to join your podcast today. Well, Lisa, it's our pleasure. And listeners, I have to say, Lisa was the one that came up with the idea for this week's episode when she and I were talking and she wondered, How did the mind and body become separated? As we know, there are scientifically proven methods that support that there are clear connections between mind, body, and spirit. And I'm wondering, Lisa, your thoughts on that. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that question for me came out of the fact that we currently are doing very different types of work. We're both clinician by training. Your expertise, of course, is in integrative medicine, and you're currently involved in treatment. And I, for a few years now, have been in a role at MindWise where I'm working more from a public health kind of a macro approach to behavioral health understanding and building resources for organizations and so forth. So. It was curious to me because, you know, we're very good friends and we see each other quite often and chat a lot about this, that that when you talk about integrative medicine, it made me think about how do we think about the mind and then how does that intersect with mental health and then mental illness? And for me, in a lot of the work that I'm doing with MindWise, it then gets into what gets in the way of our addressing these problems in in a societal basis and how does stigma play a role in that? These are excellent questions, Lisa. I'm excited to dive right in. You know, as we know, there's a long history of mind-body medicine as an ancient practice. Although some folks may look at it maybe as something more novel, it has in fact evolved over the years. So just taking a go at it, Lisa, when do you think we split off the mind from the body? Well, I think some of us may remember from college psychology that, you know, Descartes in the 17th century was the one that really talked a lot about duality and that the mind and body were very separate and that they did not interact with one another and did not impact one another. And in a lot of ways, I think that that continued. And, you know, I know later we may touch a little bit about religious beliefs and Um, That's a whole different ballgame in terms of how the mind, the spirit, and the body can be intertwined. But what's interesting to me is that it was so long ago that there was a separation of mind-body, and only until, I think, more recently, and from a layperson's perspective, if I think about medicine in that way, I feel like there was still a reticence on traditional medicine to focus on things like yoga or meditation even and recognizing the impact that has on stress and then on physical health. But when, from your knowledge, when did the integrative medicine field really become strong? 
Well, Lisa, as far as time can go back, right, where, you know, again, you mentioned the sort of more spiritual piece that we'll touch on a little bit later. Um, and, you know, even going back to cultures of, you know, Egypt and, you know, Israel, we can look back to when the mind and body were truly integrated. But in my humble opinion, the true integration happened from an empirical evidence standpoint, maybe in the modern sense, was Dr. Herbert Benson, a cardiologist who founded the relaxation response, which my listeners know I talk about every week, the opposite of fight or flight. He pioneered the work of mind-body medicine in the late 1960s. And in my opinion, he changed everything. He offered an approach to treating illness that recognizes the effect of thought, feeling, and belief on one's health. So, for example, we think stressful thoughts and we become stressed. But it's been a journey for us in healthcare, right, Lisa? So despite advances in connecting mental health and physical health, you know, I'm curious if you could speak a little bit more about that stigma around mental illness being viewed differently than a physical ailment. Yeah, well, you know, in my mind, it's interesting because, again, if we think about the medical field, it's a highly respected field. It feels legitimate, for lack of a better word. You know, physicians, nurses, those in the medical world are admired, they're respected, whereas the mental health field has always felt like kind of over there. And I think part of that is a lack of information. And a lack of information leads to misunderstanding. And then the less we know, the more fearful we can be about something. It's interesting when you were talking about the belief around stress, you know, it reminds me of Kelly McDonald's work out of Stanford. And I always have trouble pronouncing her name, Kelly McDonagall. And she does a lot around our belief about how stress will impact us actually is related to the impact. So if we know, so one of her studies had to do with a freshman class going into a very competitive Ivy League school, and they were told at the onset freshman year that this is going to be a really stressful experience. Here here are the challenges. You can get through it, but it's going to be really stressful. And what was found is that group at the end of four years reported less stress throughout their college career. So I think there's something about not only the mind-body connection, but what our expectation is around how stress will impact us. And if it goes back to stigma, because if we can't talk about it openly, then we can't have that information that would actually decrease our worry and leave us feeling more armed with information. Right. And you and I were talking about how we depict mental illness. So you had some great analogies about, you know, just even in film and in certain industries of how we look at true mental illness. Absolutely. You know, it's when you think about movies, some movies that we all love and think of as classics, the depiction of mental illness is frightening and mental health is frightening. And if we think about the continuum of mental health. And if we compare it to the continuum of physical health, there's physical health on one extreme, just like there's mental health illness on one extreme and physical illness at one extreme. And however, in movies, in media, there is something that's horrifying or comical. It's done in a way that is, again, very stigmatizing and insulting. So it's important to keep that in mind, as well as the language that we use, which Believe me, I grew up saying terms like that's crazy or that's nuts and, you know, that's insane. And 
And it takes time to realize that that has power. Words have power. And for folks that are suffering, and again, we're all in the continuum, we're all going to be experiencing stuff or a person one degree separation from us will be experiencing problems. It's important that we become more sensitive for all of us. Right. And I remember, um, you know, earlier when we were talking about the podcast, you were mentioning it from a duality perspective in terms of mental illness or behavioral health problems that can even overwhelm or frighten people. Yes. Yep, exactly. And, and you know, to clarify with behavioral health, um, you know, we think about it in terms of the mind-wise approach, but also many people in the field. And um, Colleen, I don't know if you use the term behavioral health as much. They're I sometimes still prefer mental health because I feel like it's more recognized. Um, in terms of behavioral health, um, it's often referred to as an umbrella term to include mental health and substance misuse. Um, you know, absolutely, though, I think that there's so much of a way that we need to understand these topics so that they're more integrated into our life and we're feeling that we have to distance them less. Yeah, that's a great point. Like I even think you you mentioned sometimes it's easier for people to split off the mind from the body as a way of avoiding mental health struggles. You know, so that's a a fear. Exactly. Exactly. Fear of we we we're afraid of things we don't understand and then we like to push them away because then it affects other people. It doesn't affect us. So it's kind of a false sense of security, if you will. It really is. And it's a perfect segue to my next question. So Lisa, as a licensed psychologist, I'm sure, you know, you're aware of perhaps that 80% of non-communicable illnesses are related to stress. So, you know, going back to uh, Dr. Herbert Benson and his colleagues, he basically established a scientific basis for the mind-body connection at his alma mater, Harvard Medical School, by studying the effect of stress on blood pressure. And at that time, the idea that stress could affect physical health was contrary to an existing medical thought. So looking how this plays out in your industry, you know, specifically if you didn't want to address the COVID climate right now, what what types of work are you doing at MindWise to basically look at this? So, you know, a couple different parts of that question. Um, you know, during COVID, we've had a tremendous outreach of response around from organizations, uh, from schools as well. Um, in the work that I do, I, I work more with corporations and it's really around two arenas. How do we help our employees? And as leadership, how do we support behavioral health? How do we help people cope with their anxiety and depression? Because we know our employees are suffering um, and it's getting the worry of getting work done, quite honestly. And, and let's not forget, leadership's also worried. Nobody is immune from this. And then the second request we often get is, how do we support our workers when they're working remotely? That was a huge topic when we were right in the middle, in the worst part of this pandemic, in the sense that we, there wasn't an opportunity for blended work environment and people really were working from home. So COVID had a tremendous impact in that regard. Um, you know, the other piece around um, blood pressure, heart disease, and the impact um, of physical health and stress and that mind-body piece we absolutely um, address that in the workplace in the sense that we know that chronic medical illnesses and metabolic conditions have a strong overlap with anxiety and depression. And it's 
bi-directional in nature, probably one of our favorite words, um, in that anxiety in, and depression are going to exacerbate underlying conditions like heart disease, like blood pressure, even diabetes, because if you're anxious and depressed, you're going to eat poorly and you may not exercise. Um, and conversely, having a chronic medical health condition can then create anxiety or depression if it feels like it's getting in the way of how you feel about your body, of how you're able to meet demands of your family, and how you're able to show up or not show up at work and get work done. So that connection between medical and mental health, um, we, we address every day. Yeah. And, you know, you made a great point, whereas I'm in direct client care, um, I would think that this would impact a company's financial bottom line, right? Because you're increasing sick days or um, maybe disability. Can you speak to a little bit about that? Sure, sure. There is, in the last several years, more of an understanding and a recognition that organizations must really address mental health of their workforce if they're going to have a productive group of employees, productive teams, and productive not only in terms of the quantity of work that's being produced, but the quality of work that's being produced. So it's, it has really become an imperative, a human imperative to address mental health. But let's remember, organizations, companies, corporations need to continue their business to survive. So there's also a fiscal imperative to address this. And, and the nice thing is, in a sense, both are important. Both are important. Um, and it's important that organizations are starting to see this. Progressive companies are really taking a very hands-on approach of addressing mental health, physical health of their workplace, of their teams, and recognizing that when you have mentally healthy, cohesive, happy teams, um, you're going to have a better quality of work and you're going to have better retention of talent. Right. It reminds me of our, our old days, Lisa, going back to better business globally. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, That's right. And speaking of, that reminds me of, so you're talking about this shift and it, it is in fact a culture shift within the organization. You had mentioned to me culture change in, in organizations is sort of a, a new thing right now. And you also talked about the difference between absenteeism and presenteeism, if I'm even saying that correctly. So can you speak yep. a little bit about that? So absenteeism, as we know, is when people aren't showing up. And so, of course, stress has something to do with that. But again, um, chronic medical conditions. And Colleen, this is the work you do. We know that that gets in the way of people feeling healthy and good and being able to show up at work. So there's absenteeism. Presenteeism is when people are showing up at work, but they're not really doing work. And it's not because they don't want to. It's not that they're serving the net. It's just hard to focus. It's inconsistent work. It's being uninterested in the work. And again, if one is suffering from any mental health, you know, we'll, we'll discuss trauma a whole different time, but even, even COVID, I mean, there's, you know, um, talk that COVID has been traumatic for all of us yeah. in a large, you know, it has an impact. And so how is this affecting our ability to not only show up at work, but to get work done when we're at work? Right. And, you know, 
this may seem like a pivot here, but when we use the word culture, I use the word culture, um, I know you're currently pursuing a certification to be a diversity inclusion trainer. I'm wondering, firstly, can you talk a little bit about that? And then from a, a smaller view, you know, when people think culture, sometimes they also think culture in terms of uh, spirituality or religious, or even you mentioned culture within a particular household or region of the nation. So you know, I'm wondering if we could just sort of look at if there's some missing pieces there that we don't know about. Oh, sure, sure. And thank you for asking about the diversity training piece. So that interest came from, well, you know, through the years when I was doing clinical work for a lot of years. <laughs> um, I always enjoyed working with a very multi-diverse, multicultural population. I'm Indian South Asian, so it's also something that I feel like we all have to think about who we are in the context of our various identities. So I've always been interested in culture from that perspective in doing this work around mental health education and training in the workplace. It's led me to think about um, how can we facilitate conversations around um, diversity, inclusion, equity in a way that has really many of the same principles of how we're facilitating conversations about mental health, which is with respect, with openness, with having the ability to ask authentic questions and have conversations. Sometimes I feel like being so worried that we're going to offend someone gets in the way of our asking the questions to understand the other person. And so it's very tricky because I think sometimes if we give ourselves permission to make mistakes that and give other people permission to make mistakes, we might have more of a fruitful, honest conversation, whether it's about diversity inclusion or about mental health. And of course, always, always with the intent to be respectful, but we're not perfect and we're not going to have perfect conversations about, about this. So that got me very interested in diversity training. And then from, you know, culture, I know you have a lot of knowledge and thoughts about this too, Colleen. We could talk about culture and the impact of mental health for a whole different podcast. Um, but the, it's the family we grew up in. It's it's a culture that we're from. It's, yes, the part of the country you grow up in. And then, you know, we did a focus group with young professionals in construction just Friday. And they were, and these are folks in their 20s and 30s who are very savvy, who grew up feeling very comfortable talking about their mental health and who talked about it openly in the focus group. And, you know, one of the points I made is, we're okay talking about this. We need another generation to feel okay talking about this. And so that was very eye-opening. And they talked about the culture of the workplaces and the companies that they've worked for. That's fascinating. And and it's actually encouraging to hear, right? One of the things you use, of course, I'm getting um, caught up with the jargon of, of corporate America here, um, but you used a term um, that at MindWise, the big focus of your work was upstream education. And also, you know, this word, we're going to say it out loud, Lisa, suicide and suicide prevention. That's right. you, had, you had talked a lot about that. I'm wondering if you could educate our listeners the way you did me the other day. Yeah, and absolutely. You know, and it's just that, Colleen, it's, it's saying the word out loud and talking about it. I'm in awe of our SOS program, our Signs of Suicide Youth Prevention Program, as well as our Riverside Trauma Team, who this is what they do most of the day, every day, is talk about suicide. And one of the main points that they make is um, a, one of the biggest myths is if you ask somebody about suicide or if they're feeling suicidal, you're going to put the idea in their head. And the reality is if somebody's thinking about it, it is going to be a tremendous relief 
for somebody to ask them the question. If they're not thinking about it, you're not putting that idea in their head. So I say that because it is um, a large piece, again, about our fear of talking about mental health and acknowledging that it, we can get to a pretty dark place sometimes. And and if suicide feels like something we're thinking about it, it's important that people know how to talk about it and reach out and also know what resources are available to them out there. So that's exactly the upstream model. That's that kind of public health um, way of addressing all of this is let's not wait till problems develop and the severity increases. And Colleen, you and I know from, oh my gosh, so many years we were in peer supervision groups and talking about this, that people wait till they're really in crisis to come to therapy. Right. And then they want things fixed right away. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you and I would have a place in Hawaii if we could do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, but very seriously though, you know, I, I know we've all, you and I've talked about this. We say to folks, listen, let's take this one step at a time. It'll get better. We can get through this. And we also know that if they had reached out when things had intensified, it wouldn't have had to get this bad for them. Right. So that's a lot of what the upstream is about. Okay. Okay. And, you know, moving from culture in the broader sense, I know you also um, gave me some, a, a really great list of things where what even diversity means in terms of the language. We're not even just talking cultural from like where you grew up or your family's ethnicity, but you know, you had some, right. also some wonderful terms that you used that sort of gave a stretch of a broader bandwidth of what that encompasses. So diversity can be, you know, your gender, your ethnicity, your race. It's also how you identify in terms of subgroups, you know, if you, and, you know, a lot of ERG, a lot of companies now have employee resource groups, and um, it's a growing trend to have either a mental health task force or a mental health ERG. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have an identified mental health issue. It's more those that are interested in tackling this and talking and creating a community. And I think this is such a positive, amazing thing is um, a lot of companies have ERGs focused on neurodiversity and neurodiversity in a more conservative sense is, is defined by those who experience or have been diagnosed with um, dyslexia, ADD, um, autism spectrum disorder, or on that, um, on that continuum, um, Asperger's. Some neurodiverse groups and some definitions also expand that to include anxiety and depression. So what's great about this is that there are a lot of different ways in which organizations, and even as individuals, we can think about ourselves as being diverse. And as I kind of think about having many identities and, and that's not only completely okay, but it adds a real richness to our lives. Oh, I love that many identities. That's wonderful. I'm going, I'm going to borrow you that. Can, you can, Colleen. Colleen, you can totally borrow that. Thank you. Uh, we'll try to keep that if you want. We can keep that. <laughs> oh, thank you. So, you know, we're, we're having such a great conversation. Um, I can't help but to sort of look, you know, we don't necessarily need to talk about it here, but one thing you and I have historically talked about in terms of either a placebo effect or even looking at um, co-occurring or metabolic disorders in terms of anxiety or depression, its impact on the workforce, and then even the psychosomatic struggles that people are having. I mean, I know for me, you know, 
I can't help but to think back to Freud, right? In our in our clinical days, in our education, in terms of where like um, some of this behavior is coming from, um, and you know, it's an interesting thing when you think mind body medicine. People think, oh, guru, spiritual, you know, when in fact. I personally attest the fact that there is a true mind-body connection and, you know, within the workforce, you know, looking at, you know, where you might see these comorbidities and, and perhaps, again, looking at it from either a medical model, disease model, or even mental health, behavioral health model, you know, what in terms of mind-wise in your progressive organization, in terms of what are you doing in terms of wellness programs or task force, et cetera. You know, you mentioned EAPs a lot, which I think is employee assistance programs, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's also interesting, Colleen, you're using the term wellness because a lot of what um, we try to understand with organizations is when you're talking about wellness, and this varies per organization, um, when you're talking about wellness, are you including mental health in that? Because many um, companies historically, when they've addressed wellness, they've addressed, again, body health. They've addressed, they've said, you know, you join a membership, you get to $200 credit, or you'll get this much off of your um, insurance, or, you know, here's some free yoga classes, or here's um, a personal trainer session that you can use. So it, wellness has been focused on physical. So one of the first things we do is understand, are you including behavioral health in your wellness? Um what was the other piece of that question, Colin? Um, just in terms of you had mentioned um, what the EAP program or resources might be doing. Yep. Yeah. And so, so, so you you know um, that EAPs are vastly underutilized to the tune of I think three to four five percent is their utilization. Wow. And these are, it's so low, and these are resources that companies are already paying for. I think. About 90% of companies, perhaps more, 90% of mid to large size companies um, do offer EAPs to their employees. So when you think about the money put out there and the unused resources, it's really striking. So much of what we do in the work is part of the education, part of our mental health screening program is connecting folks directly to the resources that the organizations already have in place. Um, And it's also dispelling some of the myths of EAP. So for instance, if I talk to an EAP, my employer is going to find out, he's going to have access to that information, which we know is is not true. I mean, it's a completely different company. Um, They're clinicians that are bound by the same HIPAA privacy um, regulations as medical providers are. Wow, that's that's wonderful. It sounds like MindWise um, and certainly your work um, is sort of, you know, not only spearheading this movement in terms of, um, again, mental health, behavioral health and, and wellness. And then, of course, as we look at the mind-body connection, how it affects our physical health. I think you've done a wonderful job um, educating our listeners today because you know a lot of them may be in the workforce. I see it one-on-one in my practice, but it's been just a sheer delight not only to have you today talking about this um, and helping us understand um, in, a, in a, a greater depth of the impact of the mind-body connection how, of course, we got away from it and how we're trying to bridge the gap right now. And I think, Lisa, we have a few more podcasts under our belt because I have 
many more questions for, for you and for, for MindWise, but any concluding thoughts? Well, I just really enjoyed this conversation. I agree with you, Colleen. There's so many, I think we touched upon 10 different points that could be um, an extended conversation. And, um, and I just, I'm sure that your listeners have learned so much from you about integrated medicine as I have over the many conversations that we've had. And it's just a really important topic. So thank you for including me in today's podcast. Well, it was a sheer pleasure, Lisa. Dr. Lisa Desai, MindWise, and here, please come visit us again. And thank you for all of your knowledge and debunking the stigma around mental health and especially in the workplace. To our listeners, I hope these resources can support you on your journey to a kinder self and that of others, especially during our challenging times. Thank you for listening. And for more information about my programs where I combine the psychology of the mind, the biology of the body, and the neurology of the brain to enact life changes that stick, simply go to www.restorebodybalance.com and we can use your lifestyle as medicine. See you next week and stay safe.